Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. O Lord God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we look to you as the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And we give thanks that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you made us alive in the Lord Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. And you, by your spirit, united us to him that we might be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, that we might be a spiritual temple in the Lord, both individually and collectively. We desire that we would not only be filled with a sense of your love and of your tender mercy, but also that we would be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would have uh, knowledge of the Most High, that we would understand your wisdom, your power, uh, your righteousness and justice, that you would grant us uh, to, to perceive even something of your transcendence, your infinite, unchangeable, eternal character, though these things are incomprehensible and we cannot wrap our minds entirely around them, yet we desire the the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness so that we might reflect your image and your likeness as your faithful servants, even your children. Please grant these spiritual blessings and guide us as we consider you in your existence. Help us to understand the arguments that have been presented uh, for your existence. And yet, Father, we pray that we would have an infallible assurance from your Holy Spirit and by your word that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're picking up where we left off last time in our lecture on God's existence. We began with a consideration of the exegetical aspect of this topic, drawing on Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Uh, We considered the context there in Hebrews chapter 11 with Enoch, who not only believed that God exists, but walked with God in a way that pleased God and therefore testified to his faith in God's existence and to his faith in God as a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And therefore, we saw that saving faith requires a belief in God, and yet that it requires more than a belief in God, not less than a belief in God. Even the Apostles' Creed, which summarizes our Christian faith, begins, I believe in God. We built upon the exegetical aspect by looking at the dogmatic or doctrinal aspect of God's existence, summarizing the teaching of Scripture as a whole that God's existence is distinct from that of his creatures, that God's existence as the Jehovah I am is personal self-existence, Exodus 3. We saw that God's existence is not only a reality, but it is necessary. And so when we're discussing or even debating the existence of God, we can't view this particular question as on par with saying, Uh, you know, was Bill at church this morning? Uh, The question, was Bill at church this morning, is not of a necessary nature. He might have been in church, he might not have been in church. It doesn't disrupt the space-time continuum, as they say, either way. But when we speak of God's existence, we're speaking of the existence of the necessary being who not only created the world, but it says, in him, speaking of Christ as God, in him all things hold together. All things are from him and through him and unto him. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Yeah, we could go on and on. Colossians 1.17, Romans 11.36, Hebrews 1.3. And we saw that God's existence is necessary 
from the standpoint of metaphysics, that is reality and existence and being. Uh, we're all contingent beings. God's existence is necessary to support and hold together all contingent beings such as ourselves. God's existence is necessary epistemologically. Big word, but a simple concept. How do you know what you know? Knowledge, truth, logic, science. All these things are meaningless and impossible apart from the existence of God as an objective standard by which to distinguish knowledge, justified true belief from that which is false and unwarranted, logical from illogical, science from science falsely so-called. God's existence is necessary ethically or morally. In other words, in order to distinguish in any kind of firm or substantial or absolute way the difference between good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, right and wrong, as they say, there needs to be a being who is the standard. And so, again, God's, God's existence is necessary. We saw that God's existence is clearly revealed and universally known. That's represented in Psalm 19, for instance, Romans 1, 2, and 3. We saw that uh, even among unchurched pagans, this is true by way of creation, conscience, and cognition. The, the world around us testifies to God's existence. The human conscience testifies to our accountability to God and human thinking and uh, logic and all these things. Again, epistemology testifies to the necessity of God's existence. And even in, in lands that have received the truth of the Bible and the truth of Christianity, we can add a fourth C to that evidence, Christianity itself, which we saw cannot be adequately explained apart from the fact of Christ's resurrection and of the historical facts of the Christian faith. So creation, conscience, cognition, and in our society, Christianity as well, uh, are the means by which God clearly reveals and causes uh, his existence and causes it to be universally known. Also, we saw that God's existence is sinfully suppressed in unrighteousness by the fool who says in his heart that there's no God, by the uh, rebels described toward the end of Romans chapter 1. So we got that far. We said that God's existence is not only defensible, but also inescapable. And, and we're saying that both of these terms are legitimate. There's a sense in which when we deal with God's existence and people have objections and we engage in apologetics, we're giving not, we're not apologizing, but we're giving an answer for the hope that is within us. First uh, Peter chapter three, verse 16, we're sanctifying the Lord in our hearts and we're giving an answer. We're responding. We're in a sense legitimately on the defensive and we can defend the claims of the existence of God that we find in biblical Christianity. We can defend those, and there are a number of arguments that in seeking to uh, prove God's existence take a sort of defensive approach, and that's legitimate to an extent. They're, they're defending against objections, and in many respects, answering a fool according to his folly. Proverbs 26 gives us that sort of conundrum of one hand clapping where it says that uh, uh, don't answer a fool according to his folly, uh, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And so what it's saying is different circumstances warrant different ways of approaching it. And in some cases, people make all these claims against God's existence, bringing science and evidence supposedly to show the foolishness of Christianity. And many Christian apologists, rightly so, put up a defense where they engage the skeptic on some of those issues of evidence and some of those logical and philosophical arguments. And so they're engaging the skeptic on his own ground. And we're going to see there is a legitimate way to do that. So Christianity or I want to say this actually differently. God's existence, God's existence is defensible, but it's not only defensible, it's also inescapable. So in saying that we're defending against the skeptics on their level, 
going back and forth, you know, Ken Ham versus Bill Nye, these kinds of things. Uh, it's not to say that we should ever abandon our conviction or our boldness and confidence that God's existence is actually inescapable. That from the standpoint of even debating the evidence, if you leave God out, you can't even explain the debate itself. You cannot even make sense of rational dialogue. And in fact, the, the atheist in seeking to use logic and morality, you know, Christopher Hitchens, God is not good, he says. Okay, he's using logic, he's using morality to disprove God, but he's actually having to borrow from things that could only be true if God exists. So understand, we can engage at the level of defense, but uh, in some sense, the best defense is a good offense, turning the tables on the skeptic. And we read from Charles Hodge at the end of our lecture last time, where he says, let me just read a couple quotes here. He says, self-evident truths may be illustrated and it may be shown that their denial involves contradictions and absurdities. Uh, he goes on. The existence of a being on whom, or he's, sorry, excuse me. In like manner, it may be admitted that the existence of a being on whom we are dependent and to whom we are responsible is a matter of intuition. And it may be acknowledged that this is, uh, it is self-evident that we can be responsible only to a person, and yet the existence of a personal God may be shown to be a necessary hypothesis to account for the facts of observation and consciousness, and that the denial of his existence leaves the problem of the universe unsolved and unsolvable. In other words, it may be shown that atheism, polytheism, and pantheism involve absolute impossibilities. This is a valid mode of proving that God is, although it be admitted that his existence, after all, is a self-evident truth. Theism is not the only self-evident truth that men are wont to deny, end quote. Now, I asked for suggestions as to who wrote that, and uh, we had Greg Bonson suggested, Doug Wilson, many others, but um, that's Charles Hodge, and the reason I read that quote is to illustrate that both the defense approach and the inescapable, let's go on the warpath sort of presuppositional approach, both have a pedigree within the reformed church that, that goes back further than say Cornelius Van Til and Greg Bonson. It's important for us to understand that. And that some of the defense oriented arguments are not necessarily incompatible with the inescapable sorts of arguments. Now, let's look at some of these arguments that historically have been proposed by Christian theologians and apologists to uh, defend the existence of God over against atheists. First, we have the cosmological argument. You see the word or the prefix there, cosmo, referring to the world or the earth, and logical, referring to the, the study of these things, so cosmology, studying God's creation, studying the world, the earth. The cosmological argument says that effects presuppose a supreme first cause, perhaps relying to some extent on Isaac Newton and others, but uh, they would essentially say that you look around you and you see all these contingent things. You see plants, animals, humans, uh, sun, moon, and stars, all these things in the world, in the universe, none of these things are eternal. They're always changing. The universe itself, even according to skeptical scientists, unbelieving scientists, is sort of waxing and waning, and eventually will, uh, you know, the sun will uh, pass out of existence, and so on and so forth. The, the universe is not eternal, it represents numerous effects, or you could say one grand effect. And effects presuppose a supreme first cause. Again, if you tried to say that the universe is eternal, you're getting into trouble because, first of all, that which is eternal is without sequence. It's atemporal, it's outside of time, so it wouldn't be changing. So you have a changing universe, seems inconsistent with the idea of being eternal. 
even if you said that, oh, we mean eternal according to the idea of an eternal regression of sequences into the past and then uh, an eternal progression of sequence into the future, you get into trouble there because if there's an eternal regress of sequence into the past, then the time from, you could say, uh, let's put it this way, everything up until right now would be eternal because if you went from right now into the past, it would never end, right? So it's an eternal sequence into the past. So all that has preceded this moment right now is endless. But if that's the case, if what preceded this moment was endless, you'd never get to this moment, okay? So it's logically incoherent, philosophically incoherent to say that there's an eternal regression of sequence into the past. So clearly, the universe had to have a cause at some point. It's an effect, it needs a cause, and um, it's not eternal, so that is the case. And then they would say, well, the first cause can't be part of the natural world, can't be part of the universe, it can't be natural, therefore it must be pre-natural, okay? People say, oh, the Big Bang. Well, what, what, what went bang, okay? If it's a material, natural thing, then it's actually part of the universe, and then we have to ask what came before that. So if you're going to have a first cause that created the natural world or universe, it has to be distinct from it. It has to be pre-natural, in other words, supernatural. And therefore, as a matter of defense against atheists, they say your philosophy that there's no pre-existing supernatural cause of this universe Sorry, that, that's not logical. It's incoherent. It would lead to the idea of, a, of an eternal universe, and even the scientists reject that for the most part. So, cosmological argument. Not saying it's our favorite argument, or it's the easiest argument to use in our own day. But you have to understand, uh, some of these arguments were common even among pagan philosophers, uh, Plato and Aristotle. Uh, also, these arguments were prominent in a day and age in Western society, when there was more common ground of, of common beliefs within the society that allowed people to go under the microscope with these types of philosophical arguments. But in today's day and age, um, this, is, this would not be my go-to argument, except for whatever reason, if you're with an atheist, to illustrate his inconsistency in the way he views the universe. Uh, I wanna quote Charles Hodge also in his Systematic Theology, in the course of making a point that's really helpful, uh, he says this as a premise to his argument. No man has ever been found who denies that two and two make four. Well, wouldn't it have been great to live in a day and age like that, but that's obviously not the case today. We have all kinds of shenanigans going on in the world of public education. He was at, uh, or any kind of education, um, he was... Uh, the president of Princeton Seminary, and uh, I wonder if everyone at Princeton College University Seminary would, would even agree that uh, two plus two makes four. Uh, that's just a social construct or something. So th this is, these kinds of arguments were very helpful and have some truth to them, but in our day and age, we perhaps need something a bit more radical. Here's a second argument that's traditionally used. The teleological argument, this is manifesting itself even on our own day as the argument from intelligent design. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. The teleological argument means the argument from design. Uh, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, tetelestai. Telos means the end, the end result, the completion. And you, you can see in the world around us that at face value, most people without much interest even in apologetics look at the world and they see design. Even if you watch the PBS documentary, The Blue Planet, the, um, the, the narrator of that wonderful program, at times he even speaks of design, even though he is, for the most part, I think an atheist and represents an evolutionary perspective on the blue planet, the ocean. But he can't avoid at times speaking in terms of design. So there's intelligent design 
and this presupposes an intelligent designer. This is especially on the cutting edge of, uh, of the apologetic debate when it comes to DNA, because DNA, even among atheistic scientists, is described in teleological terms, in terms of intelligent design. It's described as a code, as information. It's treated, in, in fact, there are many scientists now who are abandoning the traditional evolutionary model and they're saying, like Elon Musk and others, not that he's a scientist, but they're, they're saying, well, uh, maybe, maybe aliens put life on planet Earth and designed the DNA code and you see that reflects the intelligent design. It's got to be the aliens. And then the question, well, where the aliens get it from? And um, uh, Elon Musk, though, he, he was saying at one point that maybe it's all a simulated video game designed by the aliens. And it's, it's, all, you know, it's, it's all video games and aliens because people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But there is intelligent design, and scientists, even unbelieving scientists, are starting to try to come up with new explanations for this DNA code, this information. Uh, Richard Dawkins was asked, uh, the infamous atheist, was asked, uh, what's your go-to argument for evolution? How do you prove evolution, or what's the most persuasive argument for you personally? And he said for him, it was when he looked at the DNA molecule for the human and side by side with the DNA molecule for a chimpanzee. He said it's just so apparent. What's interesting is that in Dawkins' literature, one of the first things he often does in trying to refute intelligent design is to acknowledge, yes, it looks like there's design. There is apparent design. And he says it's his job as a scientist to show how it's not actually intelligent design. So it's interesting. The argument that's most persuasive for him is that of what is apparent, just looking at it at face value. That's the most you know, impressive argument for him. But he acknowledges that the same is true of the Christian claim and of the existence of God. So very inconsistent. Uh, the teleological argument can be used, like I said, as a way of meeting the atheist on his own ground and just showing the foolishness of how far afield he has to go from the objective scientific data in order to demonstrate his position. Uh, among the classical arguments, I'd say this one, to some extent, might actually be one of the, one of the best of the classical arguments to use in our day and age uh, because of the light of nature. I mean, you can, you can look at... Um, information that's been supplied by various Christian organizations regarding the idea of irreducible complexity. So evolution says that, uh, and of course they're theistic evolutionists, but fundamentally atheism is an atheist, uh, evolution is an atheistic type of approach that everything can be explained by natural selection and we don't need God. If you want to put God in there, fine, but he, we're, not, we're not needing God for this to happen. And in refuting that, uh, apologists from the teleological school of thought have said, yes, but there are things like the human eye and there are aspects of the human body and of various other uh, aspects of biological life where there are so many different parts that would only make sense to all be there at once at the same time rather than evolving one by one for no apparent purpose. These things would have to occur in... Uh, in, at the same time. Uh, and if you start picking them apart, there's an irreducible complexity such that the whole organ, the whole bodily system uh, needs to be together for it to have any value in the so-called process of natural selection. So again, it presupposes a comprehensive holistic design, not a piecemeal evolutionary process. So this, this is a helpful way to play defense. Thirdly, the ontological argument. The ontological argument for God's existence, this one is more challenging, uh, but there are those who defend it. If you're interested in some material on the ontological argument, uh, William Shedd's systematic theology, dogmatic theology, 
has a good treatment of it. Herman Witsius lectures on the Apostles' Creed has a good treatment of it. But this argument says that the notion of an imperfect contingent being presupposes the notion of a perfect necessary being. So this gets back to the idea of God's existence being necessary for metaphysics or existence. It says, listen, we exist contingently. We could exist or not exist. It would not affect the universe. We exist contingently and imperfectly. We live, we die, we have limitations. We all recognize that we have something called being, but there are imperfections in that being. But wait, if there's a standard by which to to, um, evaluate the imperfection or perfection of being, that presupposes that there is a fullness of being, a perfect being, a necessary being that makes all other being possible. Again, you can see how this was born largely out of uh, the medieval period and the scholastics and the philosophical thought patterns of men like Anselm. But this is what they say. Then they say, the notion of a perfect necessary being, now that we've established that it it exists or that, that there's the notion of it, by definition presupposes that this being exists. So uh, I'm not saying this is my favorite argument, but you could use this. You could say, okay, you exist and your, your existence is imperfect because you live, you die, and we could list all the imperfections of your being. Uh, you have an imperfect being that is contingent. Okay? Therefore, it presupposes that there is something of a fullness of being that gives us that standard by which to evaluate your being. So there's such a thing as a perfect necessary being. Now, I want you to envision that being in your mind. Conceptualize what is the perfect necessary being. What is that perfect being? That necessary being. Okay, now this being is in your mind. um, And 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 Anselm and others would say, okay, the, the being that you're conceptualizing now Is it a contingent being or a necessary being? Oh, no, it's a necessary being because that's the fullness and perfection of being. Okay, so you're conceptualizing a necessary being. Well, if that being truly is necessary, then it has to exist. Now, there are so many knee-jerk reactions against this argument that I think it really is not a helpful one to bring into the apologetic uh, debate. There are those who are smart enough to make it fly to an extent but I'm not sure most of us are going to get this one off the ground. So, but, you know, there it is. Fourthly, the anthropological argument. This is very common among Reformed theologians. They would say, apart from God's existence, one cannot adequately account for man's innate natural tendency in all ages and places of the world to believe in and seek to worship a supreme being or at least some kind of God of some sort and to live in ways uh, that would only make sense if God exists. So there's a universal natural tendency of mankind to have worship of a supernatural being, and they would say, therefore, man is naturally inclined to believe in this God and inclined to live in a way that only makes sense if God exists, such as having laws of morality and logic and things like this, and therefore... Atheism is unnatural, and by showing that it's unnatural back in the 19th century, that's tantamount to saying, well, therefore, it's, it's impossible. The problem with using even this argument today is that, again, not everybody thinks 2 plus 2 equals 4. So This type of argument, uh, while you could establish that man naturally seeks to, to gravitate toward worshiping a supernatural being you're going to struggle with people who say, well, who cares? Who cares? Uh, Maybe they're all deluded. Or maybe uh, for evolutionary purposes, uh, they needed to adapt to their surroundings and believe in this God to get over the next hump of evolutionary progress, but now we can let that part of the space shuttle fly off and we'll continue on in our ascent of human knowledge and evolution. Uh, and they say things like that. Well, to which we respond, um, you know, it, it could be actually that athe- atheists, in rejecting God 
and rejecting and suppressing God's existence have actually had to invent Mother Nature to keep them warm and cuddly. But the point is, uh, they're going to have reject. They're going to have arguments and objections against this. That I, I would not use this as your main thing, but I, you can say. The Bible presents man as naturally believing in the supernatural and in God, and he suppresses it. Therefore, uh, the pagans worship idols. And you can say the biblical presentation of man is reflected in what anthropologists are finding in the world. So you can use it to that extent, but it's not really a conclusive, uh, inescapable argument. It's more just playing defense. Finally, we have the transcendental argument. And this is the one that Hodge is referring to and which became more prevalent in uh, Westminster Seminary with Cornelius Van Til as the professor of apologetics and then with Greg Bonson in the late 20th century and so on and so forth. It's a movement that has really picked up steam. And as I said, it does have its pedigree prior to Van Til within the reformed tradition. The transcendental argument would say this, apart from God's existence, there is no transcendent basis for the beliefs which all of us, even atheists, must presuppose in order to make sense of anything. In order even to make sense of the debate for God's existence itself. This is an argument that really appeals to the inescapableness of God's existence and it's probably the most effective for most apologetic situations today, the most effective go-to approach. In fact, you can use it uh, indirectly, even when you're arguing for intelligent design, you can keep it in your back pocket when necessary to, to pull the reversal move. Because there are certain things that, uh, according to this argument, are unintelligible impossible to rationally justify apart from God's existence. Those things would be first the laws of logic. For instance, the law of contradiction or non-contradiction, A cannot be non-A. You have to presuppose that law of non-contradiction in order even to debate whether the law of non-contradiction is true or false, right? So if somebody said the law of non-contradiction is false, and I said, well, therefore it's true. No, it's false. No, therefore it's true, you see. You have to presuppose the law of non-contradiction to make the truth claim that it's false and not true. Okay? Otherwise, if you proved it was false, it could also be true. You know? So you, you have to presuppose it. Um, apart from the laws of logic, you can't even have a debate about anything being true or false, including the laws of logic. Now, can the atheist universe that says that everything is matter and motion, there's nothing beyond the physical material world, can it account for immaterial laws of logic? No, it cannot. Therefore, the atheist who gets up with all his logical arguments to refute the Christian faith or to refute the existence of God is actually proving the existence of God by the fact that he needs to appeal to things that only the existence of God could justify in order to refute the existence of God. So it's inescapable. You try to use logic to defend atheism, and what you're, what you're demonstrating in your case with one hand, you're tearing down with the other by logical implication. And you can see Greg Bonson's uh, debate with Gordon Stein, where he just utterly uh, wipes the floor with him in the great debate, uh, Bonson versus Stein, on this particular point. Uh, the uniformity of nature the idea that the future will be like the past. This is the entire basis of science. When the FDA looks at a study that was done 10 years ago and decides this particular product is safe or it's not safe, based upon the scientific evidence of a study that was done 10 years ago, the assumption is the elements and the substances and the things, the reactions, the chemical reactions, all of these things are constant. So if it was done 10 years ago, it's valid today. Uh, we wouldn't say, well, that was 10 years ago. The fabric of the universe has changed since then, and the boiling point of water isn't what it was five minutes ago. It, that, people would laugh you off the stage in your TED Talk if you tried to say that because we all assume the uniformity of nature, that the future will be like the past. And, of course, when Bonson used this argument against Edward Tabash, 
the, uh, the atheist in that debate. Uh, Tabash said, well, but we've seen throughout history, the future has always been like the past. There's been a constant, continuous continuity between the, the past and the future. And of course, Bonson points out, you're begging the question to say, oh, the future will be like the past because in the past, the future was always like the past assumes the very principle that you're seeking to demonstrate, which shows that at the foundation, we presuppose certain ideas in order to make sense of everything else. And, and what, what Bonson and others are saying is that the way to most conclusively demonstrate God's existence is to say, here are the presuppositions that, make, that, that are necessary for this debate to make sense. Laws of logic, uniformity of nature, ethics or morality, uh, rape, genocide, these things are evil and immoral, but if there's no God, there's no standard of righteousness, and therefore uh, the problem of evil is a problem for the atheist, not the Christian, because you can't even affirm that evil exists in an atheist evolutionary universe. So Bonson is saying uh, the very elements of the debate that are necessary to reach a conclusion, namely logic, uniformity of nature, and ethics or morality, okay, which worldview can more effectively or even can possibly explain and give account for these things that we both presuppose? So it's not a matter of does God exist or does he not, but if you presuppose that he does exist, let's call that worldview A, and then you presuppose that he doesn't exist, worldview B, which worldview explains the things that we both agree are necessary for this debate? Does worldview A explain logic, nature, and ethics, or does worldview B explain it? And what Bonson argues is that all alternative worldviews, apart from the existence of God, all atheistic worldviews, by the nature of the case, are uh, precluded. It's impossible for them to explain logic, uniformity of nature, ethics, or morality. And therefore, by the impossibility of the contrary, we affirm the existence of God, uh, such that even to argue against his existence is to borrow from worldview A and thereby to show that God's existence actually is necessary even for you to argue against it. That's the uh, presuppositional or transcendental argument for God's existence. Now, um, I, I want to offer something of a critique of that argument, and then we'll be done, and then next time we're going to look at the polemics and the practical application. But these are the arguments for God's existence. I, I want to look at, especially the transcendental, because it's the best one, because it's so helpful, because this is the type of argument we need to be using, I want to speak to a lack of precision in the way that Van Til and Bonson articulated this argument that I think has some, some down-the-road implications that we need to just be aware of. Um, so let me just point this out. Uh, in fact... I'm going to go to uh, letter F on the back side of your handout under polemics, and we'll address just this point in conclusion. Letter F, is it correct to assert that by nature all men presuppose and sinfully suppress the entire Christian worldview, including the Trinity, or is this limited to the content of natural revelation? Okay, what's the question asking? It's asking... You know, when you give the transcendental argument and you say to the atheist, you have to presuppose X in order to make sense of everything. You're sinfully suppressing X. You're presupposing it. You're making use of the borrowed capital for your science, morality, and uh, logic. But you're sinfully suppressing that truth. Now, what is the truth that all men suppress by nature. What is the truth that even the unchurched pagan who never heard of a Bible suppresses? And what is that suppressed truth that is the basis for being able to make sense of logic, science, and morality? Unfortunately, Van Til and Bonson, 
in a way understandably, but unfortunately, they consistently assert that it's the entire Christian worldview, not just the existence of God, as Hodge presented the transcendental argument, not just the content of natural revelation, you know, the unchurched pagan who's never heard of the Trinity, never had a Bible, never heard the gospel. What is he suppressing and what is he having to presuppose to make sense of science, logic, and morality? It's not the entire Christian worldview, including the Trinity. And if you look at uh, PNR, Presbyterian and Reformed Press put out an excellent volume. It's probably the best volume on presuppositional apologetics. It's called Van Til's Apologetic with, uh, with uh, Bonson essentially putting together a compilation of Van Til's writings and then giving his own comments and uh, supplementing it through footnotes and other sections. But in that volume, uh, let me just read some quotes that bear this out. Uh, Bonson says, only the Christian worldview provides the philosophical preconditions necessary for man's reasoning and knowledge in any field whatsoever. Okay, so he's not just saying God's existence, he's saying the whole Christian worldview is the precondition for everything. Well, it raises the question then, um, there's a lot in the Christian worldview that's only known through the Bible. I mean, infant baptism or, um, you know, the regulative uh, principle of worship, psalm singing or, or uh, Presbyterian church government. I mean, is the unchurched pagan presupposing and suppressing every aspect of the Christian worldview? Is he presupposing that the Sabbath is on the first day or the seventh day? Is he presupposing the Trinity? God is three persons. This type of language is not helpful because it blurs the lines between natural and special revelation. What we should say is the Christian God revealed in nature is presupposed and suppressed, but not the entire Christian worldview. Uh, Listen to another quote. This is Bonson again. Only the Christian worldview can provide an intelligible theory of evidence and produce reasoning on the basis of it. This worldview is known but suppressed by the unbeliever who attempts unsuccessfully to formulate an alternate worldview to account for reasoning and evidence. This is a problem because Romans 1, when it says that men suppress the truth, is talking about people that don't have the Bible, that don't have the entire biblical worldview. It's talking about the suppression of the light of nature, not the entire biblical or Christian worldview. To say that the entire Christian worldview is known but suppressed by the unbeliever might have some relevance as we deal with people in a Western society who have heard the gospel, but even less and less is it the case that people in our society have even heard the Christian worldview. So we have to be very careful because, when, because that is not actually a sound argument. The transcendental argument can demonstrate the impossibility of the non-existence of the Christian God insofar as he's revealed in nature, but this is not an argument that can demonstrate everything revealed in the Bible or the entire Christian worldview. That is beyond the scope uh, of, of the point here. Again, Bonson, quote, the three components singled out for mention are the Bible's self-attesting status, Christianity constituting an entire system of truth, and the defense of that self-attesting system by displaying it as the precondition for the intelligibility of human experience, end quote. We do not believe in the Reformed faith that the entire system of Christian theology must be presupposed in order to make sense or intelligibility of human experience. Again, there are a lot of things in our own confession of faith, we would say, again, infant baptism is part of the entire system of God's truth. But can you not make sense of human experience apart from infant baptism, you see? And uh, a lot of presuppositional Baptists like uh, Jeff Durbin. But anyway, but the point is, not everything is essential to, uh, as a precondition for intelligibility. And so the, the, Bonson takes this too far. Again, quote, thus, when all is said and done, Apologetics becomes the vindication of the Christian worldview as a whole and not simply a piecemeal defense of isolated, abstractly defined religious points, end quote. He goes on, in apologetics, we, have, uh, we must become accustomed to thinking in terms of package deals. He goes on, it is the Christian's faith in God as revealed in Christ that is true faith. It alone gives, 
an intelligible foundation to scientific procedure, end quote. That's a problem, friends. To say that faith in God revealed in Christ, in other words, the gospel is the only precondition uh, for making sense of science is a problem. There are scientists who have never heard the gospel. And to the extent they deny the natural revelation that they suppress, they are undermining the foundation. But to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is embedded into the fabric of the creation and into the fabric of the universe such that you can't make sense of anything apart from that actually turns God's free grace in Christ into something that's necessarily implied in the creation and in terms of human intelligibility to where it it takes away the freeness of God's decision to save sinners and turns it into a philosophical necessity which if we had time, we could show leads to pantheism, but that's for another time. Uh, Bonson was not a systematic theologian, or if someone says that he is, he was not a very good one, but he was an excellent apologist. And within the context of apologetics, if we tweak it a bit and say that apart from the existence of the Christian God as revealed in nature, uh, we cannot make sense of logic, science, or morality, that is a valid argument and it leads then to the next question of what God has revealed in Scripture. Um, I want to leave you with this from our larger catechism by way of uh, the Reformed confessional approach to apologetics. And uh, it's, it's very interesting the way that it's set forth here in terms of the existence of God and then the... Uh, demonstration of the, we could say, the Christian worldview as a whole revealed in Scripture. So, larger catechism two, how doth it appear that there is a God? Answer, the very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. So, in terms of demonstrating God's existence, you have the light of nature, you know, creation, conscience, cognition, the works of God, these things declare plainly that there is a God and then we have our full assurance from the work of the Spirit. So the existence of God may be argued for, may be defended based on these other points, as you see in some of the arguments. Uh, The entire Christian worldview is not self-evident. There's a lot in the Christian worldview that is positively revealed in Scripture, that is not of a necessary nature, but it's revealed in Scripture according to the will of God. And uh, it's important if you look at larger catechism, question four, the way we then defend the content of special revelation. Listen, how doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? Answer, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. So in apologetics, we begin with the existence of the Christian God, Insofar as he's revealed in nature, we can bring the impossibility of the contrary and and hopefully win both the argument and the skeptic. But then we pivot to the word of God and we present it as the self-authenticating truth of God from our creator and we bring the scripture, not, not trying to embed some of these aspects of scriptural teaching in the Christian worldview into the philosophical argument. Once we prove it, we go on to the scriptures and we let scripture tell us about the gospel of Christ and we let scripture authenticate itself through a declaration of the Christian worldview. So that's basically the apologetic method uh, of presuppositionalism, I think, when it's presented in its most reformed and confessional way. Transcendental argument and then you bring the positive scriptural teaching and, and point people to the Savior but the Savior is not presupposed in the transcendental argument itself. Um, Again, next time we're going to look at some 
uh, polemical questions that deal with, pra and, and then also some practical application for our lives. Does anyone have any questions about what we've looked at here or experiences you've had at various apologetic methods? Yes. Right, okay, so basically what you're arguing is personal identity it would be something else. So yeah, logic, science, and morality are just three examples, but so many other th aspects of what even an atheist and a Christian theist would both agree on, so many of aspects of this common ground of just common sense presuppositions would be uh, impossible to account for without the existence of the Christian God as he's revealed in nature and personal identity. Uh, yeah, if you have different, if there's somebody in prison for murdering someone 10 years ago, but now their material physiological makeup is such that none of the cells that were in his body when he committed the murder are still in his body, he's a different person, right? Why do we... Um, why do we identify him as a person with individual continuity and identity over time? Well, we all do it. Even an atheist would do it. Why? See, and now you have to go to the aspects of the Christian faith that are revealed in nature to explain that, and you'd ask the atheist, how are you going to explain that? So, yeah. Absolutely. Human guilt, which is evidenced by great skeptics who yet feel guilt and experience uh, that misery of the conscience. Yeah, so ethics, morality, guilt, judgment, all men by nature have a sense. There's a judgment coming. Romans 1 talks about that. So, yeah, so these are all fair game. Uh, just we need to make sure we don't inject into the transcendental argument aspects of scriptural revelation that are not written on the human heart. And, uh, and so kind of get things off kilter. But all right, let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for your revealed truth in creation, conscience, cognition, and especially in Christianity through the revelation of your word. We pray that in this society, which has access to all four, that we would shine our light before men, that they would uh, hear of your truth and see our good works and that they would believe in you who are our father in heaven and that they would also understand that you reward those who diligently seek you. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.